Hello, and welcome to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. Our host is John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And no, he's not making that up. Each week, we'll talk to amazing leaders from around the country and just about every field you can think of and pick up truths from their hard-won wisdom. In the words of John's fifth-grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it'll be fast, fun, and we'll get it done. So please join us for an inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Let Them Lead, a podcast on the risks and rewards of leading people today. I'm John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. Not making any of that up, and today's guest will be familiar to many of you, and the rest you should get familiar with him if you like food or philosophy, especially about leadership, teams, groups, you name it, it's up your alley. So without further ado, my good buddy Ari Weinswig, the co-founder and co-owner of Zingerman's 12 Businesses including the flagship delicatessen here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, our shared hometown. This this delicatessen, by the way, this group of businesses, I really should call it, um, now has $70 million in annual revenue, 630 employees. Started back in 1982. This is what USA Today gushes about, Gourmet Magazine, Molly O'Neill of the New York Times. She travels to Ann Arbor to find out what the heck these guys are doing. And of course, when President Obama himself comes to town, this is where he eats Zingerman's Deli. So the 12 businesses include, get this, Zingerman's Delicatessen, the flagship, as I said, Zingerman's Bakehouse, Zingerman's Catering and Events, Zingerman's Mail Order, one of their biggest businesses, Zingerman's Creamery, Zingerman's Roadhouse, a second restaurant, Zingerman's Coffee Company, Zingerman's Candy Manufactory, and of course, Zing Train, where all you business leaders go to find out how these guys are doing it. And of course, you've been quite transparent, Ari, in all these years. You've been begged by Beatrice and other corporations to franchise or sell out. And yet you and Paul Saginaw, co-founder, have so far refused. Tell us about that. <laughs> about refusing? <laughs> yeah, maybe it's a short story. <laughs> uh, well, it's just not what I want to do. There it is. Uh, I mean, I I could tell you philosophy behind it too, but at some level, it's just working in a way that's aligned with who you are and what matters to you. And uh, you know, if you're a religious person and you don't want your business to be open on Sunday, awesome. If you're Jewish and religious, you don't want to be open on Saturday, awesome. If you're Muslim and it's Friday, awesome. I mean, but it doesn't mean everybody else has to do that. It's just trying to do it in a way that's true to you. And so for me, uh, and Paul, I, I, a couple things, I guess I have a high belief in doing business in the town that you're in. Uh, I just think that we're part of the ecosystem. The ecosystem informs us and we inform the ecosystem at the same time. So, uh, I'm not saying it's the most evil thing in the world, but trying to run a business from another city to me is a little bit colonial uh <laughs> and and it's you know it's i i my girlfriend is a farmer i mean it'd be a little bit like her living in montana calling in what to do on the farm i mean it's not completely impossible but she's out there with her hands you know on the plants and looking at them daily and it just creates a completely different experience and so that's a big thing and then i also uh I like unique things like you, John. Uh, and and uh, I'm not real high on replicas. And obviously, we replicate the dishes that we make. But I, I just, in the food world at least, my experience of, of, you know, when you go to a really amazing place, there's just something special about it. It's unique. It's different. And uh, when you go to the 14th unit or the eighth unit, it's fine and it's convenient and it probably makes more money for the owners, but it's just not interesting. And, uh, I, I've always had that belief from the beginning. That was part of, we didn't write visions then, but that was part of what was in our heads, uh, you know, is to make something really incredible that when people came here, it would be 
um, an experience they would take with them or carry with them, even if they went back to Mongolia, that they would carry it in their head for a long time to come and remember how amazing it was. And that uh, that's still part of it today. And it still works, of course. So I have to tell you, of course, I travel a lot and you hear this all the time, but Rich Eisen out in LA, friends of mine in the media in New York, DC, you name it. The first thing they ask me is, how's Zingerman's doing? Not the football team, Ari, which of course is pretty well known with 100,000 seats, but uh, but how's Zingerman's doing? And of course, the answer is quite well. So your background in a nutshell, uh, as you, you yourself said in one of your books, 10 books, by the way, on the side, this man has written, uh, a Chicago kid drinking tang and eating cereal, not the background of a world-renowned foodie, which you now are. And of course, all your books say a lapped anarchist approach to, in this case, being a better leader. But all your books are started that way. Please give us your background and what it means to be a lapsed anarchist. Okay, John. I'm less and less lapsed as the years go on. <laughs> uh, my background, let's see. I grew up in Chicago, like you said, with uh, the high exposure to the what I have long called the mid-20th century industrial diet, but I realized a few years ago it's actually still being sold, slightly updated packaging, but it's all still there. I just stopped eating it a long time ago, and I'm not judging those who do. It's just, But that's how I grew up, Kraft American Singles, Paul's Fish Sticks, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but anyway, I came up here to Ann Arbor to go to school. You grew up here. I did not. Uh, I studied Russian history. I studied anarchism. As Zingerman's gains more acclaim, let's say, around the world, maybe we're, we're, we're getting closer to the university in terms of name recognition. But one thing that's not getting closer to that level is the anarchist collection, the Labadee collection on the seventh and now eighth floor of the Graduate Library. But uh, it is, I think, the largest anarchist collection of books and ephemera or posters or whatever in the world and or in the country. And uh, I used to go up there and study, so I, I was drawn to anarchist thinking for many uh, good reasons. Um, just interested me, like Russian history. And uh, when I graduated, I of course, there's nothing you can really do with a history degree except go back and get more degrees, which is what I was supposed to do. Uh, but when I graduated, as you, as you know, visioning is a huge piece of our work. But at the time I graduated, I had no vision at all. I had only what David White, W-H-Y-T-E, whose books I would really recommend to folks, uh, calls the Via Negativa. This is where you're pretty clueless about where you want to go, but you're very, very clear on where you don't want to go. And I knew I didn't, I knew I didn't want to go home. Uh, in order to facilitate that, I decided I'd stay here. I had driven a cab. You've been around a long time too. So vets, vets cabs, oh, yeah. uh, part-time while I was in school, it was fine, but not particularly interesting. Uh, one of my roommates was waiting tables at a restaurant in downtown Ann Arbor, which you probably went to as a kid, Maud's. Uh, and, uh, it's not there anymore. But anyway, when I, he was working there as a server. So I went and applied as a server and uh, they interviewed me, said they'd call me clearly the employment situation. And those whatever 40 something years ago was a lot different than it is today because uh, they didn't call me and they waited a couple. I waited a few weeks and they hadn't called. So I reapplied as a busser and they said they'd call me and they waited another two weeks or so. They still didn't call me and I went back and offered to do anything because I was running out of money. They offered me a job as a dishwasher and I took it. And uh, that's how I started. So I had no childhood dreams of opening my own business. Everybody in my family were teachers, doctors, lawyers, dentists, psychologists. So I had really, I didn't even know you could go into business. Like it wasn't like an option that was <laughs> on the uh, career menu, let's say. And uh, and then really, I, I had no particular interest in food. As I said, I mean, my mother was a good person, but not a good cook. And uh, it just luck, man. I just lucked into to finding a line of work that I love. So I love food and cooking. Uh, I love the food business. I also got lucky because I met great people. So Paul Saginaw was the general manager at that restaurant. That's how we met. And uh, I stayed there and prepped, line cooked, and then managed kitchens. And I worked there for about four years. Uh, Paul left about halfway through that and opened another Ann Arbor institution that's not known all over the country, but probably ought to be, which is Monaghan Seafood Market with Mike Monaghan. And uh, he and I stayed friends, even though he had left uh, mods. And uh, we would talk off and on about doing something. I mean, it's kind of a common conversation in the food business that mostly never actually happens. But uh, fall of 81, I reached a point that I 
would now see, I realized that my, I had a good job, but it wasn't good work. Uh, so it was fine. The pay was fine. The people were fine, but it was just sort of less and less inspiring. And although they didn't write visions the way we do, it was pretty clear to me that they were not going to where I wanted to go. Uh, and so I decided November 181, I gave two months notice, uh, unsure of what would be next. It was just time to get out of there. Paul, not knowing I had given notice, called me and two, three days later, and he said, hey, this little building's coming open near the fish market. We should check it out. And uh, in Detroit, where he grew up, you could get good deli food. And in Chicago, you could get it, but you couldn't get it here. So somehow, I don't know, in a week, we decided we were going to open. And shockingly, four and a half months later, we were open on March 15th. And that's when it all begins, of course, although it kind of begins, as you pointed out. It began, yeah. it began before that. Well, uh, Rebecca Solnit, who's a great writer, says that trying to decide where a story begins is like dipping a cup in the ocean. So everything <laughs> everything begins somewhere. Uh, we, we you could start in any any place you want, but that's a good place to start. So when we opened, it was thirteen hundred square foot space with twenty nine seats, twenty five sandwiches, a little bit of what's now called specialty food. At the time, was mostly just called weird because uh, nobody <laughs> knew what any of it was, and. Uh, we had two employees and me and Paul. And that's humble beginnings, of course. As my father said, the name of the first chapter of my upcoming book, When You're on the Floor, You Can't Fall Out of Bed. Uh, also, at that time, if I recall, and by the way, some touchstones, uh, Mods is where I went in 1982 to take my senior prom uh, date. How about that? So, Wow, awesome. I might have cooked your dinner. You might well have. So um, that was pretty cool. But also the history major, I too was a history major, or as my engineering roommate called it, pre-unemployment. So, yes, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And you know, people ask, you know, history major, do you like that? I used to always joke, no, I hate it, but the money is too good, clearly. So yeah. that's why I'm doing it. And, of course, they always ask you, what do you do with that? And I'd always say, I'm going to join one of those large history firms in New York. And by the time they figured you're, out- You're a lot exist, funnier about it than I was. I had a lot more time to think about it. <laughs> All right. I'd like to do a podcast with you about why history matters. So maybe you could send me some of your thoughts. I later, will but... be happy to. Look, I mean, I have no complaints about my major, no complaints about what I learned. And it's definitely tied into what I'm doing now. And in a and, and not so strange a way, you too. Which oh, is... no, it's absolutely tied in because all we do is traditional food. So- uh, I'm actually writing a piece about history after we get off this podcast, but uh, all the food we do is traditional food. So it's very much about teaching where it came from. So uh, I'm, I, as you know, was snacking on a piece of toast from our bakehouse. So it's uh, our true North bread, but is the name, which won't really mean much to people, but it's a, it's a natural 11 bread. So this is how all breads were raised up until the 1860s when commercial yeast was introduced here in the U.S. by Mr. Fleischmann. Oh, you know yes. That name, uh, who was a Hungarian Jewish immigrant. And uh, before that, though, all bread was raised naturally. So it's about an 18 to 20 hour rise time, which is wow. how bread used to be made. And then uh, the, the, the grain, the flour for this bread we mill here at the bakehouse, which is, of course, how everybody used to do it. People either used to do it at home or they would walk to the local mill because every town had a mill. And, uh, and then it doesn't have anything in it but flour, water, and salt, which is the old way of doing it. So understanding the history behind each of the foods that or drink that we work with is super important. And then I, I would suggest actually understanding the history of any product uh, no matter what it is that somebody does, you know, in the case of hockey, uh, I was just reading this morning, the history of the Detroit Red Wings and, the, and how that started. So it's, uh, it's, it's always interesting to know the history and then also the history of the people that you're working with. Like, who are they? Where did they come from? They didn't just land at your door in a box, uh, delivered by some mail order company. Uh, so knowing their history is super important too. Love that. One of my mantras when I teach at the University of Michigan, which I do occasionally, <clears throat> is that individuals matter and moments matter. You think that, okay, the Detroit Red Wings, Zingermans, of course, Fleischmans, etc., were always there, and of course, they we're going to succeed. Almost always, they beat the odds to exist, and usually yeah. required one or two crazy people with a vision who did not listen to conventional wisdom. That's almost always yeah. the formula. 
Yes, and they've also evolved like nature uh, in ways that one wouldn't have thought. So you probably knew this because you're in hockey, but little did I know that the Red Wings started uh, in Victoria, British Columbia. That's right. And they were the called the Cougars. Right, the Cougars moved to Detroit, called the Cougars. Then they made it the Red Wings, and Norris from his track club in Toronto uh, took the wing from the heels, added a wheel for the Motor City, of course, and now them's the wings, of course. So. Similar story about the Blackhawks we'll get to one day. Yeah. Uh, But your history major and your voracious reading habits to this day uh, inform your books. It's amazing how many uh, references you get. Rather esoteric, to say the least. I've Uh, even quoted you. uh, That's how scary this gets. (laughs) So appreciate that. By the way, more than once in your pamphlets, too, which is another way to express yourself. Yeah. Ten books, many pamphlets. You write all the time and you read all the time, despite your crazy schedule. Uh, This is, as you pointed out, the anti-business business book. Really, kind of all of yours are, I would say. Um, And you basically spell out in pretty clear terms, in fact, very clear terms, how you did repeatedly the opposite of conventional wisdom. And I'll pick on a few chapters here because our time is only so long, of course, unfortunately. But but chapter two, it's really chapter 20 because it's part of a series. But chapter two in this book is raising the energy bar. And in that, you mentioned visioning. Visioning is a big thing for you and Paul from uh, 1994 on, I believe. In 1982, I think you first started. Um, and you do it every few years. And it's amazing how often you guys are pretty close to what you had envisioned, you know, five, 10 years earlier. Explain that process. Yeah. So there's an, you're talking about part two of the leadership series. In part one, there's an essay called 12 Natural Laws of Business, which I realized when I wrote part three, which is on self-management, that they're also the 12 natural laws of life because every organization, whether it's the Red Wings or uh, your high school hockey team that you coached or Zingermans or whatever, all, all I'm going to suggest all healthily successful organizations and individuals have a bit, uh, are honoring these natural laws. Uh, they may not call them that, of course, but they're doing them. Uh, I saw them all uh, essentially spelled out through your own uh, book on the hockey team. And I, I think if you listen to any athlete at the end of a big game or you listen to a great uh, theater producer or whatever, they're all going to s- essentially cite these same things. And the first one on the list is that all healthy organizations that are getting to greatness as they determine it, whether whatever that means, uh, have a vision. Now, whether they write it down or not the way we do is a different question. But in the in the leader's head, in the founder's head, in the coach's head, whatever, they have a vision. And if they're working with other people, they share that vision in a meaningful way. So when Paul and I opened the deli in 1982, we had one in our head, but we didn't know anything about visioning, which is quite common. And, you know, I I wouldn't recommend doing it that way, but it worked out as it often does for people who, uh, as you described, who get to get to some level of greatness. But uh, in 1993 and 94 is when we first started to learn about this process, which is a way to... uh, on paper or on the computer screen now what you have in your head in a, in a meaningful way. And so basically what we're doing through that process is merely to capture uh, in a documented form what I think every six-year-old already knows how to do, which is imagine a future that's not just following, uh, extrapolating from the present reality, but more that lands them in a cool, creative place. So for some six-year-olds around here, it might be playing for the Red Wings, which might turn out to be uh, what we call a fantasy because it wasn't strategically sound as well as it was only inspiring. But but the point is just that we all grow up as human beings knowing how to imagine a more positive future. But society, pressure, family, et cetera, et cetera, weigh on us so much, I would suggest that we bury our, our dreams uh, underneath a lot of rocks. And this is a process that we use uh, that starts with what you would know from the writing world as as free writing, but we call hot pen, which is basically the, just where you sit down, plant your brain in the future and write for 40 minutes or half an hour, an hour straight without stopping. And that can include a lot of curse words like I do it when I get stuck, or it can include uh, writing the, the Red Wings starting lineup, or for you, it could be the River Rats team names. Uh, but the point is that we need to keep writing because it's when we stop to think about it that we get ourselves in trouble. So 
we actually use vision for everything here. It's, it's really a way of thinking and being in the world, I would suggest. Uh, and through neuroplasticity, we know if you do it regularly, it, it literally changes the way you approach things. And uh, But it's basically about describing the future of your dreams. So we wrote one in, 2000, or in 1994 that you referenced. We wrote one for 2009, so 15 years in the future. Then in 07, we wrote one for 2020 because we were almost at 2009. And then in 2018, we started the work, which got slightly derailed by the pandemic and formally rolled out our 2032 vision in January of 2021. No, January of 2021. I apologize. So the 2032 will put us at 50 years. But we use the visioning process for projects. People use it for new jobs they're creating. We use it for our change process to show how it's going to be when we have gotten through the change successfully. Uh, people write personal visions. And then because this is really about a way to be in the world, like I said, they start writing them for their wedding, they write it for their honeymoon, they write it for their relationship with their kid, et cetera, et cetera. That to me is one of the most powerful things you're teaching. I've never seen any great leader, the ones I've studied, been around, got to know like you, of course, and Richard Sheridan I talked to earlier, Jim Hackett of Ford Motor Company. Um, I've never seen anyone really pull this off without that vision first. And it's not always in terms of quantifiable numbers. Um, corporations ask you to do that. And if they'd asked me to say, okay, when you started coaching the Heron hockey team, what numbers do you need to hit to know that you've been a success? And I said, I can't give you any real numbers. I, I know we're going to be a winning team. I know we're going to be have all state players and have good grade points and blah, blah, blah. But none of those tell me that we got there. What it was, the strong feeling is that we're going to be a family. We're going to be together and we're going to feel like we enjoy coming to the rink and we love beating up on teams. <laughs> that was, you know, being competitive is part of the, part of the deal. But we knew that about ourselves before day one. And that's when we were pretty bad, of course. So that's where it starts. And your advice there is spot on. A little aside in that chapter, by the way, which I love, is uh, an energy killer is gossip. And only a few paragraphs on it. But man, that is, I see that all the time. Of course, we all do. And I recall the advice I got about that is you have two options when you have a problem with somebody. You can either tell them or shut the hell up because anything else is going to make it worse. And it's true. Yes, it, it is. You're correct. Uh, we actually have a little more work on it than what I understood at the time, but because essentially gossip is almost always negative beliefs. Uh, and I wrote a whole book about beliefs and I, I have come to realize that one cannot get positive outcomes from negative beliefs. So, uh, you know, the gossip, the back talk, whatever you want to call it, it, it sort of feels like a relief at the moment. And it's we know from the news it's it's a it's a very easy and convenient way to bond with others. I've certainly done it too because if I just start telling you how screwed up somebody else is and you go, yeah, man, it's terrible, and then I go, yeah, it's really bad, and then we just we build our bond. But the problem is we're not actually achieving anything positive, and we're putting a lot of negativity out in the world that comes back to haunt us later. So uh, I've tried to teach myself not to do it. Of course, I slip like all humans, but uh, I would suggest it's A, a waste of time, uh, B, it's a waste of energy, and if anything, it's actually putting negative energy out there, which actually makes our lives harder. All true, of course. I had a rule on my team that once we heard the other team start barking at each other, pointing the fingers, getting mad at each other, and so on, I want to know about that immediately. And the reason is I would tell, I'd scream it down the bench. i say, look, guys, these guys are dying to lose and blame each other. They'd rather lose to blame each other than win and have no one to blame. So let's help them by beating them. So work hard, support your teammates, my only two rules. And those things, as simple as they are, work. But in the workplace, of course, it's it's in you know, a pandemic, basically. And very hard to stop, but it starts with us, of course. So love that one. Another aside in the energy, how to maintain your own energy, of course. And in my running, my quote, my quasi-running career, um, I came across your notion that you run every day for 30 minutes. You don't care about the mileage. 30 minutes, almost no matter what, and you almost never, ever miss. What does that do for you? And by the way, for viewers who don't know, uh, Ari Weinswig, the man has not gained five pounds since college, despite working in the emporium of food that he does. So that's impressive. So tell us about the 30 minutes. Yeah. Well, it's actually minimum 30 minutes, uh, although there's a few times where time was super tight and I did only 25. But uh, I actually generally go longer now. I get slower as I get older. So 
I've expanded the time, so I'm, I've been more like an hour a day through the pandemic, um, sometimes a little bit more. But, uh, you know, I'm slow, but I just keep going, and I actually do go every day, and I know that's weird, but I haven't missed a day for over six years. And the day I missed was when I flew to Ethiopia. Tammy and I flew, and I spoke there. And I, in hindsight, wish I would have brought my shoes in the airport because I could have run in the airport. But we didn't leave airports and planes for like 36 hours, so it was physically impossible. But I, it does a lot. Uh, I didn't, un, unlike you, I, I didn't do any of that as a kid. Um, I was too anarchistic and introverted to have any interest in organized <laughs> athletics. But uh, I started, I don't know, 30, 31, I started running. And uh, it really changed my life. Um, I mean, I don't, I, I am an introverted anarchist afternoon runner, so I don't run races at all. Uh, it's the opposite of that. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to be self-judging while I'm doing it. And I don't want to try to prove anything <laughs> other than to myself that I can do it. Um, but I, I obviously it has some physical benefit that's important also. Uh, in the, I think that's generally acknowledged, but it, it also has simultaneously a lot of uh, emotional, mental ba uh, balancing. Or it helps me balance, helps keep me grounded, clears my brain. It's kind of the only time during the day that I'm not talking to somebody or working on something. So uh, it just helps me with that. And I, I, you know, I run outside every always year round. I don't like going in the gym, not that others shouldn't, but I like getting the air. So uh, I think that connection in nature also helps uh, to ground. So I, yeah, I run as you know, eight degrees, hundred and eight degrees. Just keep going. That's amazing, of course. And my favorite story along these lines, I think it was an airport in Zurich uh, where you had half an hour and you realized that you can do it now. Yeah, there were two two airports. It wasn't Zurich. There was one uh, where we landed in Budapest uh, going to spend a week in Hungary. I think. Oh, maybe it was Zurich. And I was waiting for my friends. Maybe you're right. And so uh, they were they were coming in a different plane. So I just ran around the parking lot while we were waiting. And then the other one was coming home from Italy a few years ago. Uh, and I happen to live with a woman who also runs every day and she's way faster than I am. And uh, so we don't really run together. We don't like it. But anyway, uh, we were in the airport and we had time and it, the security there was slightly less intense. So you could go out and so uh, we were with Grace uh, Singleton, one of the priors at Delhi. She's like, yeah, I'll stay here with all the stuff. So she watched all the stuff, and we both went out and ran uh, around the airport, around Milan. And uh, then we came back and got on the plane. And the streak was intact, and so was your head. The streak was intact, and so was my head, absolutely. That does help. So I, I also journal every morning, which is sort of the men the, the a different emotional equivalent of that, which is to clear my brain every morning. I love that. All those habits, of course. I'm not quite as religious as you, but I'm, I'm getting there. And like you, I prefer running in the afternoon after the tension builds up and I need to go for a run to burn off whatever it is. And, it, and even though I you know, strictly outline this as a non-work time, it's amazing how often the thing that's clogged up in my head gets loosened during one of those runs. And I come home and go, ah, yeah, this is easy. I got this. Yep. With you all the way, man. There you go. Jumping ahead, chapter four slash 22, we're all leaders. Of course, I ate this chapter up. I'm yeah, because you wrote about it in your book. Well, Not the... my chapter, but the same idea. Yeah, oh, exactly. And the title, Let Them Lead, same stuff. And I've never seen, and by the way, I'm totally playing favorites on my podcast. I don't care how rich or famous anybody is. If I don't like their philosophy, I'm not calling them. So it's, it's really simple. I love your philosophy. It's very close to Richard Sheridan on mental innovations down the street from you. Just you know, talked to him the other day. Yep. There you go, of course. Um, and others that I really admire. So uh, we're all leaders. The point of that is, except for the guy who's been there for a week or two, and maybe even that person, um, everybody at Zingerman's has an opportunity to lead, and you listen to them. Yeah, it doesn't mean we do what everybody says, but they don't do what I say all the time either. So <laughs> it's it's it, this is really about teaching everybody to think like a leader from the time you start. And and so I'll say a couple pieces about it quickly. I mean, one is just most people are taught to do their job, 
but they're not taught to think like a leader or a business person or whatever, a coach. So this is something that I really didn't even realize we were doing, but then later it sort of dawned on me that we were. It's just, if you think like somebody who's just doing the job and you come up against a situation that wasn't what was trained to you, <laughs> but no one encouraged you to think like a leader, you freeze, you make a bad decision, or you say stuff that you hear all the time in other businesses like, oh, I'm not allowed to do that, or the rule is this, right? When clearly it's a dumb answer. <laughs> but, and unsatisfying but, to the customer, obviously. No, totally. It's it, it's it's not just unsatisfying. It's often alienating and customers get lost from businesses because of that. So that's one piece of it. The other was my, which I wrote about in this essay, was what uh, Stash Kazmierski, who taught us the, the vision work uh, 20, whatever, almost 30 years ago. Uh, he, he used to call it a belated glimpse of the obvious, right? So one of the key things that we did with our service training, uh, you know, decades ago, 35 years ago, whatever, was we authorized everybody to do whatever they needed to do to make the customer happy, like period. You know, we're not in healthcare, we're not in uh, flying space shuttles. So uh, if you think the customer needs to be comped, comp them. Like, I don't care if it's your first hour, do the right thing. If you think they need a delivery to their house, let's do it. You know, everybody has been a customer and everybody's smart. So let's use your brain. If you don't know what to do, ask for help. That's awesome too. Uh, and we had early on realized what now is sort of well accepted, but 40 years ago was not, which is that everybody's responsible for service. Like it used to be like when I was a kid, you had to go to the service department to get service. Everybody else was just doing their job, right? And then the service manager with probably his in that those days, but his or her team uh, would be responsible for the service element. So we, we quickly switched that. Everybody who worked here was 100% responsible for guest experience, period. And then I, it dawned on me, though, that although that had worked really well and we had followed that with open book management, which is a system uh, based on really a sports model, by the way, about teaching everybody uh, how the finance works and making them all responsible for the financial health. So we had made those two huge switches over the years, but I realized with leadership, we were still stuck in the old model, you know, that everybody does their job, but the managers are responsible for leadership. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. The manager is a manager because they accept certain job responsibilities, but we can't just let, you know, 10%, 5% of the workforce lead. We need everybody to do it. And sometimes the manager makes mistakes. Of course, sometimes the manager doesn't know what to do. Of course, sometimes always the, the frontline people are going to see things that the person who's in charge just won't see. Diversity dictates that we all see different things. So this was getting everybody to own responsibility for leadership and trying to get across, which is still challenging, is like, I don't care that they're the partner. They might be wrong. <laughs> if you think they're wrong, I know it's awkward. I'm afraid to tell anybody what I don't, what they don't <laughs> want to hear still to this day. And I own the company and I'm still afraid. So I'm not suggesting it's going to be easy or comfortable. I'm, I'm nervous just going to work, but we need to get over that and do the right thing and bring it up. I'm talking with Ari Weinswig, the co-founder of the amazing Zingerman's community of businesses, including the great Delicatessen. And if you want to learn more about Let Them Lead, the book or the podcast, you can check out LetThemLeadByBacon.com. Now back to our conversation with the great Ari Weinswig. Kind of like that, of course. And on our team, we had the joke, uh, people talk about leading by example. And clearly that's important. You can't be a lazy person or dishonest and expect them to be hardworking and honest. But it's a bare minimum, as it was our take. In other words, as you said, that's, that's your job essentially. And our line about that is, yeah, we got a name for those who lead by example. We call them sophomores. All that means is you know your job and you can do your job. As a junior, you've got to know your job, do your job, and know their jobs. And as a senior, know your job, do your job, know their jobs, and help them with theirs. And in your case, I love it even more. First week, you're basically a senior. You're allowed to yep. take responsibility for everybody and everything. And if it's you versus 630 employees, I don't need to tell you, you're going to lose. That's a, that's, a, that's a bad mismatch right there. So the layers of leadership you have instilled because they're all leaders, and I love that. And a, a side point you just mentioned, the open book financing. If there's one idea you've got that scares the hell out of the average CEO, it's open book financing, which seems to go against everything we see in corporate America. 
Uh, it does, but I would suggest the old model, which is how we started too, because we didn't know any different, doesn't actually make any sense. This model is, it's, 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 we would say open book management or finance, not financing as opposed to, so it's not about, no, no, no. It's just for clarity. Somebody's out there going, oh, how, that's how they raise capital. Uh, this is, this is about running the business and it's about involving everybody who works here. And I say everybody in quotes because, of course, there's always people who don't engage or whatever, but they have the option to engage and opting out is different than being excluded by far. So it's about involving everyone in the business and running the business. In order to do that, they need to know the numbers. And we learned this from uh, the folks at Springfield Remanufacturing in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, the textbook on it is Great Game of Business by Jack Stack and Bo Burlingham. Uh, Bo actually wrote the foreword for part one of the business book. And uh, it's really, it is based around a professional sports model. So uh, as they wrote, and they're right, uh, the absurdity of most of the work world is that most of the people playing the game of business, so to speak, i.e. the employees, who are by far outnumber the executives always, uh, have no idea how business works. They don't know the rules. So this is like playing basketball and nobody told you about the three-point line. Nobody told you how many timeouts you get, et cetera, et cetera. So most staff people have no idea that sales are not the same as profit. Most staff people have no idea that if you sell $100 that they think the owner gets 90. Uh, they don't understand you can have sales boom and lose money. Uh, they don't understand you can uh, be like Amazon and <laughs> lose a lot of money, but make a lot of money through the stock market sale. You can, I mean, it's, you know, there's just all sorts of stuff that's going on that people have never been trained in how it works. So they don't know the rules. The second thing is they don't know the score. Uh, so if you're in the hockey world, this would be a little bit like the they think they, they haven't been paying a ton of attention and nobody really told them what's happening. So they think they're winning like six to two, but you know, they're actually losing eight to one. So, you're, you're the coach and you're like, come on, you guys, we got to get going. Let's get going. Let's get going. They're like, get off my back, man. We're fine. It's the third period and we're way ahead. It's like, actually, you're about to go out of business <laughs> and nobody knows. And then the third piece is that they generally don't get anything when the team or the organization wins, so to speak. Uh, if they do, it's generally in a very paternalistic magic box, sort of like, nice job, honey. Nice job, son. Here's $100, which is better than not getting $100. But they actually have no idea what they did to get the $100. Whereas with your team uh, in the book, I mean, you're you're telling them, you're teaching them leadership philosophy. You're teaching them technique. Uh, when they use those techniques and the mental techniques that you taught them well, they generally did better. And they can tie back their the success of the team in the game. They could tie back to something that you taught them in practice or whatever. Uh, in most businesses, though, they don't know like, oh, so I guess when I was rude to that customer, I got a hundred dollars. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> that pays. You know, well, they're they're all, you know, they're making up stories and their friends and family don't understand how business works either for the most part. So they're feeding them stories. Zingerman's, look at those prices. They must be gazillionaires. It's like right now, most of our businesses are losing money. We're in the pandemic. That's I mean, the reality, and that's the reality. reality that your employees actually understand yeah. it's been shared yeah. and they get that, Hey, you're not laying guys off because you're good people. You're confident about the future, but yes, right now we're taking a hit and that is valuable too. Uh, we found on the microcosm of a high school hockey team, which has 30 people, not 630. Um, the more data we collected on every game, face-offs, plus minus shots on net block shots. We had 15 measures for every game per player that the more that we kept track of and the more we shared, the better they got without us saying anything. I mean, they want their numbers to get better. So once they see all the numbers, that starts mattering to them. And in your case, uh, a, a knowledge vacuum almost always will be filled with you. <laughs> you and I said this the other day on the phone, with the most negative possible stories, uh, paranoia and suspicions of the bosses being gajillionaires and you know slave labor and so on. And and it ends up being not true. Business is actually very complicated. And now they start seeing that and feeling the responsibility for the whole. Yep, absolutely. And that's really the whole point. I mean, and we are responsible for the whole. I mean, and by the way, this is true for the community too. So outside of work, I mean, but if you're raised to believe you're only responsible for your own job, like in your world, whatever, you know, I'm the defenseman. I stopped him. It's not my fault. We didn't score any goals or it's not my fault. The goalie screwed up and let the puck in. 
it's it's we're all in it together and that's just the reality and as you know i mean i work more with the ecosystem model than sports but the two are you can are, you can interchange them and in the ecosystem in nature i mean everything's impacting everything else and we feel a responsibility to help each other within the organization and then carry it further because i believe that we're all responsible for the ecosystem of which we're a part it's not the question isn't is it our fault that it happened like it doesn't really matter what matters is we have the power to 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 contribute positively going forward and that's our job well that's a, f- a fine segue for my last chapter we'll talk about in your book and the book again by the way is being a better leader a lapsed anarchist approach to this subject from Ari, Ari Weinswig, the co-founder and co-owner of Zingerman's many Zingerman's community it's called on the website of course zingermanscommunity.com the third chapter I'll mention here is Chapter 25, Managing by Pouring Water. The title alone gets your attention, of course, and you actually mean just that. Yep, yep. So uh, it just started kind of by accident at the roadhouse, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, I happened to come in uh, to work on a, I don't know, I think it was a Friday night and it was kind of busy. And so I turned the corner and I looked at a table and they needed water. So I went back and got a pitcher of water and I filled their water. And then I looked at the next table and I was like, oh, that, that guy needs some water too. So I did that. And then pretty soon I was like, well, it's busy. Everybody's running around. I'll just go get some more water and I'll just check the whole room. And before long, I realized it actually was a terrific way of working uh, for a whole number of reasons, which we don't have to cover all of them here because they're in the essay. But I mean, it, 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 it gave me, well, it gives me a lot. Uh, a, I can experience what's actually happening uh, in real life in a way that one, I don't actually have an office, but <laughs> that one can't experience from a distance. Like until you can see in our world, the customer eating the food and how they eat it and what's working and what's not working well, et cetera. So it gave me this sort of upfront uh, view of things. And Number one. Number two, it's really great from my end to reground in the work. So there's a lot of work on the business, which I'm a huge believer. That's the visioning, developing training systems, et cetera. And that's super important as we get bigger, even more important. At the same time, losing track of the day to day, I think is both a mistake strategically and also it's emotionally difficult because that's how we got going, right? So if all I did was pour water, that's not going to work. But if I never pour water, that's not going to work either. So for me, it's very good to reground both in the really wonderful things like people giving compliments and loving their meals, but also in the difficult realities like handling a customer complaint because I happen to be standing there or the guy didn't like his whatever, I'm dealing with it. And then the third thing is, it's just, it's, it's good whether, so I'd say half the people know who I am, in which case they like it. And the staff knows that I'm out there doing it, which is great. Cause I'm just the same as them cleaning up spills, picking up crayons off the floor that a kid threw down there, helping to bust tables, whatever. Uh, and half the people don't know who I am. So they'll tell me stuff that <laughs> they would never tell the owner. And it's not undercover boss because I'm not hiding and it's right. not a, tr- it's not a trick, but it's just, I'll learn things and have conversations in a good way when people do know I am whatever that would never happen otherwise, because they're not going to seek me out and go through whatever channels one can use to, to, you know, reach out to the CEO in quotes or whatever. But if I'm standing there holding their dirty plate that I'm clearing from the table or pouring water, it's just a thousand times more likely the conversation's going to happen. So whether they know who I am or I don't, or they don't, either way, I think it adds value. And I, I mean, I use pouring water, as you know, but the truth is that could exist anywhere. So uh, Patty Poppy, who's a friend of mine who was the head of a uh, uh, consumers energy in the western part of the state is now out in California with PG&E. I mean, when I taught uh, beliefs to her team here in, uh, in 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 Michigan, it was about 300 people about beliefs for 90 minutes, and I don't know how it came up, but she's like, "Oh yeah, every Friday afternoon I go work the call center for three or four hours," and I'm like, "You so you work in there?" And she's like, "Yeah, I just I'm in the queue and they, I answer the calls." <laughs> yeah, but it's like. 
you know, if you're in her role or my role or whatever, I mean, we're working a lot of hours by choice. I mean, it doesn't bother me. But so you spent two hours or three hours out of your 60 hour week answering the phone, talking to real customers instead of discussing theoreticals and statistics, I think is huge. Now, if you ignore the other things, it's not going to work either. Like if all she did was the call center, then you're just a call center operator. But but having an hour, two or three or 20 minutes makes an enormous difference. And I said with respect, if people in Congress cleaned the bathrooms each, took a turn once a month, it would go better. And not, it's not a cut on one political group or the other. It's just when you lose touch with like, that's the work, man. Somebody has to cook that food you eat in a cafeteria. Somebody's got to like clean the, the fleet, you know, go out if you're in a company that does deliveries and just clean trucks once a week or once a month or something. It's very grounding to get back to those realities. I love that one, of course. And I've never seen a great leader, one that I admire, not do this. Uh, Jim Hackett, I mentioned earlier, was the CEO of Steelcase Furniture with 14,000 employees. He had an open door policy, which amazed me. And he said, there are a lot of good reasons to do it. And you listed them off and he would agree with all those. And he also added the one that you also underscored, not the main reason to do it, but certainly a good one. He said, how the hell do you think I know what's going on here? I, I don't ask my vice president about the guys in the line. I ask the guys in the line, what's going on? Because I know those guys, the truck drivers, the secretaries, they will give you answers. As you said, frontline people know things that others simply won't. And they won't offer it, sadly, unless they're asked in many cases. So you got to be there. And that certainly works. So... I'm going to do uh, three takeaways here, and then we'll ask one final question. The three takeaways I've got from today, I got, a, I got a page full of notes right here, actually, Ari, but I'm going to pick three. One, the clearer your vision, the brighter your future. Two, the more information you share, uh, the happier everyone feels and the more connected they feel to the whole. And three, don't be afraid to do the simple things that everyone else is doing because it's great for morale, it's great for you, it's great for their organization. So I love all three of those. Um, and now the bonus question, who was your favorite teacher? Wow. I don't know who my favorite was, but I have many, I guess, if I reflect back. No one's asked me that for a long time. Uh, there was one teacher in, I think, seventh grade. Our teacher left on maternity leave for much of the year, and a guy named Mr. Serrata came and taught to us. And he taught us about propaganda and it was very helpful because like there's stuff he taught me then that I still think about. Like he taught us like, look out for the unattached figure. So that's where you go. It's 34% better than it was better than X, what? but they don't tell you better than <laughs> like better than what, which is a commonly used technique. And he taught us about the not essentially what is now became known with Nixon as the non-denial denial where they don't actually answer the question. So he taught me all this. He taught us this stuff that a lot of it stayed with me. Uh, Bill Rosenberg uh, was a great professor at uh, U of M uh, who taught a awesome, taught revolutionary movements, uh, which really helped me a lot. And uh, Professor Organsky, Ken Organsky oh, sure. taught. So he, he, well, and political science. So he he's the one who showed me uh, it was a longer conversation, but he said most of the, especially the, this, at this time when I was in school, like you're st stuck in the middle of the Cold War, right? So everything was to fight communism. So he said, like, people look at, they think fascism and communism are two opposite ends of a continuum, but that's a mistaken model. And he said, it's actually, they're actually two points on a circle. If you imagine a circle coming together, they're right next to each other on the circle, they're just slightly different manifestations of the same thing. And he said, anarchism is 180 degrees, the other side of the circle. And that really helped me to process it in an interesting way, because it was about honoring the individual in a way that's still committed to the community, whereas the other two were really about eliminating the importance of the individual in, in their respective ways. And so his, his work influenced me. I love that. And by the way, you're right. Poli-sci, not economics. I had it myself. And I recall it was Poli-sci 160, which I took in 1984. So, and, and we had not compared notes before, by the way, Ari and I had not. So No, no. And I'm just realizing as you asked me that, it's just funny. I had never thought about this, but all three of them have in common what you have in common with me also, which is they talk fast. 
<laughs> which isn't good for everybody but for you and me it's awesome there we go and uh, there's probably like a few people listening to this they're like well if i put it on i don't know how to do it but if you put it on half speed yeah, exactly. on my podcast replay i'll be able to understand what they're talking about well not only am i guilty as charged ari i've had to work very hard to slow it down this much that's yeah i i believe you that's my deal so mr serata seventh grade bill rosenberg in my head uh professor organsky and of course, what do they also have in common? None of those guys were easy, but they all cared about you. And that goes a long way. Yep. So as simple as it is, my management idea is just that. You want someone who cares about you, but thinks you can do better. And that's, that's the idea. So uh, great stuff. Mr. Serrata, that's got to be 50 years ago. Uh, probably more, but yeah, right around there, dude. And he's still there. So, Mr. Serrata, wherever you are, hats off to you. So maybe he's listening. Maybe cool. he's listening and hope he does. So, great stuff. Ari, a pleasure as always, whether it's a private conversation on the phone, in person, or, of course, uh, on this podcast. And I'll send a copy to Susan Kane, our now mutual friend, who wrote the blockbuster Quiet about introverts. And, and you're more proof. Introverts can, in fact, become great leaders. Yes. In fact, as she demonstrates, a high proportion of them are. Uh my weird way of introversion, though, is that I'm happy to give out my email to anybody who wants to interact one-on-one. It's ari at zingermans.com. Uh, and then, uh, as you'll probably mention in whatever you, your version of show notes is, uh, we are kind of off the grid with the business books. I didn't like the big publishing world mm-hmm. and in a way that one of the, the key beliefs of anarchism, which has helped me a lot in my life, is that the means that we use must be congruent with the ends that we want to achieve. The means we use need mm. to be congruent with the ends. So like yelling at an employee to be nicer to customers is <laughs> sillier. Yeah, but it's very common. I, I know it is. Uh, That's what's right. sadly, tragically but, funny. Be nicer. No, par- Good luck with that. Par- parents do it all the time. So uh, so we, we try to do the books in a way that's congruous with the kind of food that we work with. So artisan uh local as much as we can so we do all the books here we have them printed here in town we're off of the uh main distribution channels but people can get them at either zingermanspress.com or zingtrain.com and if they have questions let me know and then also my own my e-news if they email me i can sign them up for that or you could put the link in the show notes give them the give it to them right now we will put in the show notes okay well if they go on zingermanscommunity.com on the right side it says newsletters and if they do what i believe is called a drop down menu Mm it says e-news sign up and you can click on mine's the top one on the list just click on there and fill in your stuff at the bottom and then you'll get it i am a loyal reader of course great stuff he finds time to do this pretty much every week and i'm uh, gonna work on it right now when we're done better let you go All right. Ari, (laughs) a great pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. You can connect with our host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, by visiting his website, letthemleadbybacon.com. We hope you had some fun, learned a few things you can use tomorrow, and think about the rest of your life. Come back next week for more unexpected lessons in leadership, and we'll see you then.